You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man, as a two-time felon, I work really hard and I've been a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Hey, hey, welcome back. Thank you for joining us today for episode 69, Giggity Giggity. <laughs> I'm sorry, I am a child, I know. <laughs> today on the show, we are joined by Scott H. Young. Scott is a writer, a programmer, a traveller and a self-experimentalist. Back in 2012, Scott became known in the interweb circles for famously completing a four-year MIT undergraduate computer science course in 12 months. And he did all this without taking a single class. So in one year, Scott successfully managed to complete 33 classes, as well as all of the retired classes, all of the projects Scott completed, all while saving himself hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of debt. Then let's go to 2014. Scott undertakes another extensive self-directed learning project, but this time with the focus on languages. Scott went an entire year without speaking a single word of English whilst living around the world. Scott achieved an excellent level in Spanish, Portuguese, Mandarin, Chinese and Korean. Then let's look at some of the other projects in which Scott has done. Scott's other aggressive learning projects include learning quantum mechanics, becoming a skilled portrait artist. The progress that he made on all of these projects is just completely insane. So then the question comes, what do all of these projects have in common? All of these projects are what Scott would define as an ultra learning project. Ultra learning, as Scott says, is the detailed and practical science of learning hard skills at a rapid pace with a high level of effectiveness and efficiency. The world is just not the same anymore. If you go back 50 years, a four-year college degree, it would guarantee you a great career. And now, it's not even guaranteed you a foot in the door for a minimum wage position. When you look at the principles of ultra-learning, which we discuss all throughout this episode, and it is a long one today, guys, you'll be able to learn, adapt, and thrive in this modern world. For an entrepreneur, that could be sales, marketing, public speaking, coaching, graphic design, negotiation. On a personal level, that could be learning a language, learning an instrument. The ability to learn and learn faster than anybody else 
is a skill which is never, ever going to go out of fashion. And I can say with absolute certainty that it is a skill which will make you extremely wealthy. As a preface to this episode, which we recorded back in July, I mention the under I mentioned the Ultra Learning Project in which I personally was going to undertake after I read Scott's book. So the Ultra Learning Project that I elected to go for was to learn to dance with the goal of competing in a competition. So and bear in mind now I had zero prior dance experience. So I trained for around three months. I was doing a number of hours per week. I'll probably write a blog post about this. But anyway, I competed in a dance competition on October 18th. There's eight other couples there. I made it to the final, which completely blows my mind considering where I started. And, you know, I have to say it was some of the most fun I've ever had in my life. So if you guys decide on an ultra learning project, then please let us know what you decide. But I realise, now looking at the screen, this introduction is five minutes plus, so I'm going to shut up now. So I won't drag it on any longer. Scott H. Young, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Oh, it's great to be here. You did a four-year computer programming course at MIT in one year. You went an entire year without speaking any English. You learn quantum mechanics in your own free time as well as these dance projects. How the hell are you doing it? My first sort of project that I did was called the MIT Challenge, where I was trying to learn MIT's uh, undergraduate computer science curriculum, but I was able to go through their classes uh, trying to pass the final exams and do the programming projects so that I could, you know, try to get a computer science education. And I did that over 12 months in uh, 2011. And then another project I did, uh, I called The Year Without English. I actually did that with a friend. And we traveled to four countries, Spain, Brazil, China, and South Korea to learn Spanish, Portuguese, Mandarin Chinese, and Korean. Um, And so each country is about three months. And uh, the method we used is that whenever we would land in each country, we were not speaking in English. We were only speaking the language we were trying to learn. And uh, I would say it was quite successful. Obviously, it's hard to articulate an exact proficiency level. But if you go to my website, I have lots of like videos of us giving interviews and conversations and stuff. So you can get a sense of how successful we were in that. Um, And I've done projects to learn portrait drawing, quantum mechanics, cognitive science and, and other things as well. I suppose, Scott, that leaves me with the next question, which is, what was the motivation to do all these crazy projects? What do you do when you do something you like? It's because you're good at it and you feel proficient and it gives you joy in life. And so for me, the kind of hobby I picked up was how do you get good at things? And I think it's just for me, the reason I'm so passionate about it is because the things that really give you joy in your life are the things that you're good at. You feel like you know what, I can do this, I can draw well, I can play the guitar, I can speak French, I can do these things, they give you satisfaction. And so really, for me, the process of learning and, and ultra learning, like, it's not just a tool 
for doing things that are useful for you, but also a way of getting that satisfaction, getting that meaning in your life and avoiding a lot of the uh, unpleasantness or the fears that you're not good at things. Where does one come into contact with the idea of ultra learning? Well, so I'd always been interested in learning in these kinds of subjects. And um, I, I would say that, you know, I've always been a curious person, but the, the idea of ultra learning, the idea of taking on ambitious, self-directed kind of learning projects was introduced to me from uh, a fellow named Benny Lewis. And the story behind that is actually kind of interesting. So I was on exchange. I was in university and I was on exchange living in France. And I had this idea that I was going to become fluent in French. And I thought, you know, that would be so cool that like I could come back from the trip and I would be, you know, parlaying en français and it would be you know also <laughs> impressive and i was there for a few months and i was like oh actually it's not going that well like i'm not actually you know i'm learning french i'm studying at home but when i go out of the house you know all my friends they speak to me in english including the french ones and so i was getting kind of discouraged at this point and it was around this time that I was introduced to Benny Lewis. A friend of mine was like, hey, you know, I know you're kind of griping about learning a language, but have you seen this guy who goes around from country to country trying to learn languages in three months? And like immediately when you hear that, especially when you're having kind of a rough time learning, you're like, oh, that's that's BS. I'm not like no one can do that. I'm struggling. I've been here for four months. I'm not very good. And I'm I'm like a smart enough guy and I'm working hard. There's no way you can do that. But I had a conversation with him by email and I decided to meet with him in person. And the thing that stuck out to me wasn't so much, okay, he's using a very specific tactic, like, oh, he's got this trick and that's how you learn the languages. But just his overall philosophy towards learning and particularly learning the language was different how I was approaching it. So I was at home studying vocabulary and like just hoping that I would be good enough to speak to people. And he was up having conversations with people well before he was like officially ready. And so this really stuck out in me as, you know, that if you approach things in this way, if you figure out, okay, what's the effective way of doing it and really just dive in, even though it can sometimes be a little bit more frustrating or scary at first, it can be a lot more effective. And so that was a, a big sort of inspiration for me in doing my own projects and quite directly in doing the Year Without English project where it was like, okay, let's not make the mistake I made in France and let's actually do it properly. And I would say that the results are like night and day, like my experience learning uh, Spanish, for instance, the first country that we went to, I learned more in three months than I did in a year in France. And the irony is not that, oh, well, immersion works well, because I think most people would accept that, but that the process of learning was actually easier in the long run um, in Spain than it was in France. So I really think of ultra learning, not just about you know, here's some weird people taking on intense projects that you don't have anything to do with. But if you make tweaks to your learning approach and you can sort of do sometimes what is the hard thing initially, uh, you can often make it a lot easier for yourself in the long run. You can get proficient more quickly. You can actually start enjoying using the skill. And so this is really what I want to try to take to people as, as the message. What I love about this idea of ultra-learning, Scott, is that it is such an incredibly valuable skill. Imagine being able to really break down the science of learning. Imagine if you could learn a language in three months or get a four-year degree in one year without the hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. Imagine if you could learn a 
vital skill like sales or marketing an intensive and self-directive learning project it is in my opinion one of the greatest skills which someone could acquire the ability to learn so scott i am (laughs) going to throw myself in the deep end here to you and lewis who are both sitting here i am going to compete in a dance competition I'm going to enter into it in October time, uh, and just for everybody listening, the only dancing in which I've ever done has been very drunk in a club. I am certainly not a <laughs> a wonderful mover by any means, but I am going to enter into this dance competition. I'm going to follow all these wonderful principles which you talk about, and I'm going to you know, see how I do, man. <laughs> oh, that's so, awesome. I love that the book has encouraged you to, to take on some kind of cool project. If you get those learning principles in place, uh, you can really go quite far. Was there a certain point that you can recall where you thought to yourself, you know, this ultra learning thing, I can apply it to so much or basically anything at this point. Was it a point that you remember where it, it turned from just those little successes to thinking, wow, I could really build something on this idea? Well, I, you know, it's it's funny you talk about that because I feel like this is one of the, I don't know, there's personal experiences you have when you go through something that are sometimes hard to communicate. You know, anyone who has, you know, traveled to another country and then tries to talk about it to people back home is often met with sort of blank stares because it's hard to communicate some things that are personal experiences. But for me, um, like doing the MIT challenge, which was sort of the first big project that I undertook, uh, the way that I left feeling that was, you know, when I describe it to people, people think, oh, man, that sounds kind of painful and frustrating. But really, it wasn't like that at all. It just felt like, oh, wow, you know, I had always been under this impression that if you wanted to learn something, you had to go to school. And this was just such a flip for me that, oh, no, you really don't need to go to school to learn anything. <laughs> I mean, sometimes going to school is is useful. I don't want to be totally discouraging of people to, to get formal education, but just that, My previous mindset was, oh, I'd have to go to school if I wanted to learn X. And so this idea that, oh, wow, if I wanted to, I could learn anything and I could learn it quite well if I wanted to. And I think the the language learning was another example of just sort of seeing that applied to maybe non-academic languages and and other things. So I've seen it as like each time you take on a project like this, you're just sort of like, oh, wow, if this if this works this way, how could you apply it to, you know, something else or, or what is something else that you've been kind of stuck with your assumptions that you could think around? So, Scott, there are going to be people listening right now, which are thinking to themselves, wow, I would love to be able to learn a language in three months. I would love to be able to learn a four year MIT course without the debt in a year. But talk to me about how applicable this would be in the real world. Let's say somebody wants to get a job at Google or Apple or, or IBM and they decide, okay, I'm going to follow Scott's ultra-learning project. Would they still have a shot at getting into one of the world's major companies by following this approach? I, I did a little video about it and uh, Reddit picked it up. And um, this guy reached out to me saying kind of like, hey, are like you looking for work? And he wasn't um, 
he wasn't working at Microsoft in the capacity that like he wanted me to say, oh, uh, you know, so-and-so from Microsoft uh, reached out to me. But he was sort of like, hey, you know, if you want to have an interview, I can probably like talk to one of my colleagues and, and try to set you up with uh, with someone here. So I think the, the reason I pointed that out is that a lot of people are quite pessimistic. They're like, well, you know, learning things are good, but all that really matters is having the right degrees and credentials. And I mean, there is some truth to that. Like if I were not studying computer science, if I wanted to study to be, let's say, a doctor, I mean, it doesn't matter how much medical knowledge I acquire on my own. If I don't have a doctor's degree and 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 uh, the license, you know, I can't practice. It's not even legal for me to practice. So there's definitely a place for, for formal education in that sense. But I think a lot of people... Um, sort of overrate in my mind, overrate the importance of degrees because those are kind of the first barrier to getting employed that like people will say only with degree X apply. But really what the person is doing is they just want to filter down the applicants and avoid interviewing people that obviously aren't qualified. But a lot of people I talked to, you know, even this guy at Microsoft was telling me some of his colleagues, they didn't have degrees in computer science. Like one of the people he knew who was a great programmer had a degree in music. So it's definitely not the case that um, you always need to have those credentials and that there's lots of ways you can get exceptions around it. Although I do agree that, you know, our society is sort of set up that we we tend to reward that kind of credential. Um, I think it's just sort of because it's uncommon to acquire skills outside of the education system uh, right now. Who is ultra learning for, Scott? Is there a minimum IQ requirement? So I'll make two points. So the first thing is, is that I'm not trying to make the claim that uh, that everyone is equally smart and that, you know, it's that there's no such thing as talent and that intelligence doesn't matter. Um, really, my book isn't about that question at all. And so I made a whole story about Terrence Tao, because if you read about Terrence Tao, the guy is clearly ex- insanely smart. And if you dig into his bio, there's not like a real clear, obvious, oh, well, he's doing X and everyone else is doing Y and that's why he's so smart. It's, you know, maybe he's just really smart. And and there's a lot of people who would like to be as smart as Terrence Tao, but perhaps aren't. So I don't want to be mistaken as as saying that, you know, well, everyone's exactly the same. And if, if you aren't doing well, it's just because you have the wrong method and you should feel bad about yourself. No, obviously not. But on the same sense, in the same sense, I worked really hard when writing this book to focus on ideas and principles that will apply to most, if not all people of all intellectual abilities. So it is not to say that you need to have a super high IQ to be an ultra learner. And an ultra learner is just someone who takes on aggressive self-directed learning projects. I do think that the book is more suitable for adults than children, just because children often haven't developed that capacity to uh, monitor themselves in quite the same way. And so I think often when we're dealing with children, it's usually the parents that are often directing the kids. And my book is more written for the learner themselves. But that being said, you don't have to feel like you did well in school to read this book and get a lot of value from it. The principles that I outline are going to be true, whether your IQ is not that high or whether you're a super genius. I think there are probably some slight differences in how you would approach things based on your your own intelligence. For instance, some people, they might breeze through something because they memorize things rather easily. Whereas if you don't memorize things rather easily, you might have to actually employ certain tools. And that applies to learning lots of subjects. 
But that being said, a lot of the book is about going through those tools. So in many ways, I would say it's actually the people that maybe struggled with learning that would benefit from the book more because they're the ones who need the more help with the efficient tactics. If you're super duper smart, maybe you can get away with having a sort of lousy method and still manage to succeed in the end. Whereas if you struggled in school, you know, it really matters that you're using the right approach because otherwise everything is just going to be way too frustrating and difficult for you. One thing I wanted to run by you was mm-hmm. in in preparation of this podcast, we we sort of ran a a small focus group sure. of some of our listeners, and and literally everyone said that the concept of ultra learning is something that they a hundred percent want to be able to do. The main query about ultra learning, um, or the doubts they may have had, was some people said they don't think that they necessarily have the time. Um, mm-hmm. What would you say to someone like this? Always ultra learning, you know, you just have to accept that it is a time heavy investment and it just may not be for those people. One of my goals when picking stories and examples for the book were to pick the ones that would be the most inspiring, the most interesting, uh, the most impressive. And naturally, if someone does something much faster in a shorter time frame, so someone who learns a language in three months is maybe more impressive than someone who learns it in three years, even if maybe you counted up the hours, they actually invested the same amount of time. Um, that naturally leads to me picking these kinds of stories. But that being said, none of the principles I talk about really recommend, okay, well, you have to be working on this 80 hours a week or you're not an ultra learner. Um, in fact, there's even some evidence that points in the other direction that people who you know, spread their projects out and, and work on it just you know a little bit here and there may actually be better for some aspects of memory. So I think that it's definitely not the case that you need to be devoted to this full time to do it well. The first way is to do part-time projects. So you could just be like, you know what? I only have two hours a week. So two hour week, two hours a week is what I'm spending time on. So you can pick a more focused project where you're gonna focus on something that's a little bit smaller, more manageable, or you can just stretch the project out over a longer period of time. And that's both of those are totally doable options and nothing about ultra learning contradicts that. The second way is to take what I call learning sabbaticals. And I mean, learning sabbaticals are not open to everyone at all times, but a lot of the people I interviewed, they took up ultra learning projects because, okay, well, uh, I'm quitting my job and I want to switch careers. So I have like a short burst of unemployment where I really need to learn some new things so that I can be employed at the next job. That's a perfect time to do some ultra learning or students who have a summer off and they want to, you know, really master some subject that's going to be important for their future or, you know, academics who even take small sabbaticals or or what have you. So sabbaticals are not something that everyone can do at all times, but they did come up surprisingly frequently when I was actually interviewing people. So definitely taking on, OK, I'm going to work on this really intensely for two months because two months is all I've got is also an option. And then the final way I want to talk about it is that in reality, even if you're not in a classroom, you're learning constantly. You know, you're learning new tasks at your work. You're learning new things to, uh, you know, stay ahead in your life. Maybe you're, you know, you have a hobby that you want to get better at. Maybe there's some role that you want to transition to in your job. Maybe you've got a big speech to prepare for it. You'd like to deliver it well. So like the list goes on and on and on. But in reality, we're learning constantly at all times. And so even if you don't plan on investing a single second outside side of what you're already doing, meaning you're super busy, ultra learning is still going to give you a perspective on what are you already doing to learn and how could you make tweaks to that process to make it more efficient and effective. So even if you don't feel like you have time, it's still something that you could look at and be like, oh, you know what? I actually spend a lot of time working with Excel. 
what if I got better at Excel so I didn't waste so much time doing it? So I, I want people to not um, have a totally fixed mindset of, well, this is just, I don't have enough time to do this. I think there's a lot of ways that you could apply it to your own life without having to carve out huge amounts of time. So what is the starting point for an ultra learning project, Scott? I divided ultra learning into nine principles in the book. And the reason I chose principles as opposed to some kind of, all right, step one, step two, is just because learning projects are so varied that if you just give a set of steps, it will work really well maybe for some project, but then not as well for another project. So the right way to think about it is principles. And, and the way the metaphor I've been using is that these are kind of like the little dials on your dashboard of learning. And so when you look at a project, you can look at these little dials and be like, oh, this one is clearly set way too much over to this side. So let's dial it back or let's tweak it to what will uh, optimize performance. So the first step in any learning project is the first principle, which I call meta learning, which uh, meta is a term which often is used to describe something being about itself. So meta learning would be learning about learning. And in this case, where I usually recommend people start is to start doing some research. So if you want to learn a skill, the best way to start is how do other people learn the skill? What resources are available to learn the skill? What are the kind of typical obstacles or difficulties that you might encounter when learning that skill. And just a quick amount of, you know, Google searching and internet research can often reveal a lot of really useful information. If you spent like two or three hours trying to Google what's the best way to learn Spanish, for instance, you would probably know more than most people who have taken, you know, two or three years of high school Spanish classes about the right way to learn Spanish. And so I highly recommend before you start any project to do a little bit of research just to figure out what options are there, what resources and tools and methods are out there so that you can already start using a more effective approach. I would also tell people in particular that choosing the right project is so, so, so important. This is currently a world in which overwhelm is so right with something which I've been tying with I would even make a case that the ability to choose the right project is a tremendous skill in itself so an approach which I subscribe to is the Scott Adams systems thinking now for everybody listening right now I highly highly recommend that you research this but basically systems thinking is you choose a project based on two reasons. You choose a project that is win-win. So even if the project fails, because you have picked a project which has allowed you to develop relationships and build skills, so able to transfer that to other areas that it doesn't even matter if the project fails. An example in which I would give of this is this podcast, for example having this podcast I've had to research so many different guests I've had to read so many different books I've had to improve my speech I've made enormous connections I mean I've spoken to people like Robert Green on Skype and <laughs> all these other crazy 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 things in which this podcast has allowed me to do and the other thing I would add as Scott is that I don't think, personally for me, I would undertake a project in which I wasn't very excited about. I think that 
having an approach which, first of all, you have that systems thinking by Scott Adams, which I highly recommend people research. So remember, even if the project fails, you've gained skills and developed yourself in a way that it doesn't even matter. And the other one I would say is that if you feel tremendously excited about the project, then that's a great starting point. I wouldn't suggest doing it just for the sake of doing it. I think that that could be a recipe for disappointment, for needlessly adding things. So as soon as you feel the excitement, and you will know, you will know. So Scott, let me ask you, how do you personally choose your projects? So uh, there's a lot of things I look for. And I, I would first of all say that I do... Uh, spend a lot of time learning things. Not everything I learn is done, you know, with a full ultra learning project. I think the principles of ultra learning certainly come into play, but there's lots of things that, you know, I dabble with it for a little while before I decide, okay, no, I'm going to be serious and, and approach this with an ultra learning project. But the, the way I like to think about things is, first of all, it has to be something that excites me. So if I'm going to be learning something, if I'm going to be spending a lot of time working on it, it has to be something where I'm like, oh, yeah, that would be really cool. Or, oh, God, I, w I wish I would be able to do that. So if it's just something where it's sort of perfunctory and it's like, well, yeah, I guess I should get better at this. I don't think that that's going to be a good candidate for picking something. It should be something that when you hear it, you're like, oh, yes, that sounds awesome rather than, yeah, I guess so, <laughs> because it is it is going to require you going through a little bit of frustration, a little bit of difficulty. And so if you're not really excited about it, you're not going to be motivated to continue working on it. So for me, all the projects that I took, like the ones that I mentioned like the MIT challenge or year with English or portrait drawing were just something that when I imagined the result, I just thought, oh, wow, that sounds really cool. That sounds like it's worth my time. So that's definitely a first point for me. For me, I also kind of, because I'm a blogger, I somewhat distinguish my sort of public ultra learning projects from the ultra learning stuff that I do on my own. And so when it's a public project, I often also think about like, well, how would I be able to talk about it when it's done or as I'm working on it? So there's a lot of projects that I like to work on, which maybe don't make the most interesting or exciting projects for other people, even though they would be like super interesting and exciting for me. So I, I also weigh those factors. Can you possibly juggle more than one project at once or is it important to stay loyal to a project at a time? So my general advice is to only have one project at a time. I think um, it is possible to do more than one thing. So I think, you know, we can talk about edge cases if people come up and say, oh, well, but that, I'm in this particular situation. So therefore, it makes sense for me to do this and this. So there are exceptions. But generally, I would say my all-purpose advice is just have one at a time. And if you have a lot of things that you want to learn, my advice is to pick smaller, more bite-sized targets and then switch between them. So if you want to learn three things, instead of learning three things simultaneously over three months, maybe pick three one-month projects. And the reason I recommend this is just because it's a lot easier to manage your life and your attentional resources and your priorities when you're only focused and obsessed on one thing at a time than if you're doing multiple ones. And I think this is a real skill as well, is that a lot of people they maybe want to take on something extremely ambitious that will take them a you know a couple years and then they start working on it and then it just feels overwhelming and they quit so i really recommend even if you're going to take on an ambitious goal to really chunk it down into very specific milestones so like when i'm learning a language 
yeah, it's maybe the eventual goal is perfect fluency, but I always have sort of these smaller goals like, okay, well, my first goal is to, you know, learn the most frequent 100 words. And then my first goal is, okay, I want to master these 10 or 15 basic phrase patterns. And then, okay, I want to have a five minute conversation while also using a dictionary. And then, okay, I want to be able to, you know, have a half hour conversation and not need the dictionary. And then, okay, I want to be able to read a novel. And then I want to be able to read the novel with the dictionary. And so there's all these little micro chunks. So even if you feel like, okay, wow, there's so much stuff to learn and I'm feeling totally overwhelmed. My advice is to start with something really concrete, really small, and then build momentum off of that. So even if you have a big goal that you want to reach, it often makes sense to chunk it down. And if you have multiple goals you want to reach, I would try to focus on one small goal and try to, you know, get to that point and then maybe switch if you want to later. I like this because I feel as if now we are really getting into the granular, the real tactical approach to learning. So let's talk about KPIs whilst undertaking a ultra learning project, Scott. What are the key performance indicators that we should use and that you have personally used? This definitely does matter. I think it's often useful to have a couple metrics that you're tracking to keep track of things. I think it's also important to recognize that often there's going to be a lot of things that don't break down to the metric that you're learning. So it can also be tempting to get super obsessed with one metric and directness is basically that you always need to be benchmarking yourself on the situation you want to use it in. And this is true even if you want to use the skill in many ways. But for instance, you mentioned you're learning salsa dancing right now. So one of the things you could ask is, well, is your goal to be able to go to nightclubs and have, you know, fun salsa dancing with strangers? Or is your goal to be able to do, you know, complicated choreographed routine with someone who you already know? So that already indicates maybe some slight differences in how you might learn that. Not to mention, okay, do I want to be able to dance, you know, the, the you know, on one salsa or on two or Cubano salsa or like all these kinds of different little micro questions. So the first thing when I'm talking about uh, directness is that your key performance indicators always need to be aligned with what is the situation you actually care about. So let me give an example. When I was learning Chinese, a really good key key performance indicator for at least literacy or reading and writing is how many characters can you recognize. And this is a good benchmark because uh, to be a proficient reader in Chinese probably requires between two and 3,000 characters stored in memory. Um, it depends. I've, I've heard estimates that adult uh, college-educated Chinese uh, speakers typically have about five to 8,000, but a lot of those are quite uncommon. So they're like, you know, names of an obscure plant or, you know, weird sounds that, you know, they're only going to appear once in, in the occasional book. So a useful benchmark then is how many characters do I recognize? And you might know this by how many flashcards you've done. So, you know, a, a good beginner goal is can you recognize the hundred most common characters? Now, it's important to have this goal and to use this sort of as a benchmark of, okay, now I can recognize 1,000 or now I can recognize 500. But at the same time, it's important to recognize that there's a lot more to reading and writing than just recognizing those characters. So I think it's good to, you know, have that key performance indicator and, and keep that in mind while you're working on things. But in the same time, to also be like, well, am I actually getting better at reading things? Am I getting better at the tasks that I care about? So if you were reading because you want to read Chinese literature, 
Are you able to read more literature? If you were reading because you want to be able to understand text conversations in your WeChat conversation group, then that's a bit of a different goal. So it's really important to uh, to use key performance indicators because they can often give you a sense of progress when your kind of overall sense of am I getting better or worse is somewhat ambiguous. But at the same time, you always need to tie it back to um, what is the actual situation I'm applying it in? Otherwise, it's very easy to get off track and let's say memorize tons and tons and tons of characters and then not actually have learned it in quite the right way. So it's not really helping you with the thing that you need to be working on. And so this is what I recommend with people when they're learning is to look for these little KPIs. But at the same time, also be aware of what's the actual qualitative situation you're trying to get better at and, and always keep that in mind to make sure that they don't get out of sync. So essentially, Scott, you have broken down ultra learning into nine key principles, which are meta learning, focus, directness, attacking your weakest point, retrieval, feedback, retention, digging deep before building up, which I believe you called intuition, and then the last one, experimentation, which takes people on a tour outside of their comfort zone. So an example of that would be learning French through, say, a podcast and then actually trying to go and apply that in the outside world. So looking at those principles there, what are the key questions that we can ask ourselves to make sure that each of these principles is working? So for directness, the question to ask would be, what, you know, how much do I have to transfer this activity to the thing that I actually want to get good at? If you don't have to transfer it that much, it's very similar, then okay, you get a thumbs up for directness. If the activity is kind of contrived and very different from what you're actually going to need to do in practice, well, okay, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad idea, but it definitely means you should be putting a question mark next to it. So if the thing that you're doing is mostly reading a book, but the thing you actually want to be able to use it for is, you know, in some kind of practical skill, okay, all right, well, it's not necessarily bad, but it's probably not going to be a complete activity for getting good at that skill. Or you can be looking at drills and be like, okay, how is the thing that I'm working on right now, really honing in on the weakest point in my performance? How is it really allowing me to get better at some specific aspect of the skill that is otherwise difficult to practice with everything else at the same time? If we're talking about retrieval, it's am I actually bringing up ideas from memory or am I just looking them up in the book? If we're talking about um, uh, feedback, the question is, you know, am I getting useful information to adjust and correct my performance? Is there a lack of feedback? Am I paying attention to the wrong feedback? So there's lots of little micro questions you can ask yourself about every activity. And sometimes you can be like, oh, wait, wait a minute. This activity actually doesn't fit these principles much at all. I have to go back to the drawing board and see something that's more effective. Other times it will be like, well, this isn't maybe ideal. And so maybe I need to supplement it with something else. So doing flashcards is really great for, for learning a language or learning, let's say, you know, a lot of subjects, uh, me medicine, anatomy, um, history, but it's usually, it's rarely enough. Like just doing flashcards is often going to miss a lot of things because it's not quite direct enough. And there's a lot of little, little tiny details that you need to get right in order to be able to do it. And so the, the thing to look at when you're, when you're evaluating your activities for effectiveness is to sort of run through the principles quickly and just sort of ask yourself, okay, how, how does this stack up with the principles? And that can give you a good idea of, 
you know, where you might be able to make improvements or where you might be able to make optimizations um, and what things to look for in the kind of things you do when you're when you're learning. I love that you mentioned the topic of effectiveness. Effectiveness is something which I've had a complete fascination for. And it, this takes me right back to my third year of university. So I went to go and see my learning professor one month into my final year at university and this is the year where obviously you hand in your thesis and you have a dissertation and whatnot so I remember I went to go and see him and he asked me how many hours a day are you currently studying and learning so I said to him well I said you know I'm learning two hours a day I have, you know, a good focus two hours a day in the morning and then I go about my day, I go and exercise, redo whatever else I do in my day, go and get drunk, <laughs> whatever else it was to do at that, you know, at that time in my life, go about my business of living. And I remember he said to me, two hours a day? He said, that can't be right. I said, I said, yeah, I said, that's true. It's two hours a day. I said, that's, that's pretty much all I'm doing. I wake up. I have my coffee, I go to the library, I study for two hours a day and then go and do whatever else is on my, my to-do list. And I remember he said to me, you know, you're making a fatal mistake. He said, I've got people studying 10, 12, 14 hours a day and they are currently failing. And I remember at the time this made me think, studying 14 hours a day and you're failing. To me, that seems like a framework problem for studying, if that is the case. And when I look back, I always think to myself that one of the major things which I did right, I would always study in the morning. I knew that at this time of the day, I personally felt a lot better about doing it. I felt more productive I was more focused there was a lot less going on I wasn't as tired as say later in the evening whereas I think a typical thing which a lot of students do is they will try to do a lot of things late at night they'll go to their lectures throughout the day they'll go out for food and then it comes 9 10 11 p.m and then they'll start studying through research and coaching and you know reading all these books and speaking to neuroscientists and doctors and whatnot what I came to realize was that there are actual cognitive reasons as to why studying at that time during the day was beneficial to me to cut a long story short I came out with an honors degree I never essentially ever broke that principle I remained true to it over the two hours per day in the morning all throughout my time at university I suppose this brings me on to my next question, Scott, which is, in terms of learning, do you think that there are times throughout the day in which are more beneficial to learn, for example, morning versus night? Uh, I do think that people have different circadian rhythms, so it's sort of well known that some people are kind of almost genetically programmed to be night owls, and some people are genetically programmed to be early risers. And so there's some of us 
you know, we're going to be feeling our most energetic, our most productive at 6 a.m. And for others, it might be at like 11 p.m. And so my advice to you is to find your own rhythm. So rather than me saying, okay, 10 a.m. is the time you should do all your studying, I think you need to notice, okay, well, I do really well in the morning and then around 1 p.m. I'm getting sleepy. And so I think uh, for, for, you know, obviously you don't always get to learn and work in your most energetic time, but if you pick the right times of day when you feel the most energetic to do that hard mental work, I think you will get some benefit over if you are trying to pigeonhole yourself into a schedule that, you know, is not necessarily the best for you. Yeah, I think you're so right but in terms of the individual tailoring their learning needs to their project. When we're looking at circumstance, I think we can't discuss the topic of learning and meta-learning without also looking at environment. You read books like Atomic Habits by James Clear, you look at Hooked by Nia Real, you look at The Power of Habit by Charles de Higg, and they all mention this habit cue trigger. So behavioral psychologists, they clearly say that each environment brings within us a different cue which may lead to things like you being addicted to certain things an example of this could be you walk into your kitchen and you see a kettle suddenly you want a cup of coffee or your alarm could ring at 9 a.m in the morning and then suddenly that could trigger in your mind that it's time to write for the next two hours or you could enter into your bedroom and There could be a stimulus cue that now you need to go and watch internet pornography. So I think that the environment in which we set ourselves in fires and wires new pathways in our brains. So to me, it seems as if one of the major things that we should definitely do is to set up an environment in which when we enter into it, those neural pathways they know specifically okay it's time to learn and some common mistakes of this would be doing it in your bedroom because there's all different cues which are going on inside your mind that time is it time to sleep is it time to study is it time to watch a movie it don't know there's so much different confusion there what are your thoughts on environment scott So I think you're right. I think that environment does matter. I think there's two ways that we could say that environment matters. So the first way is just actually like the physical environment that you're in. Um, There's actually some interesting research that shows that having, let's say, music on or like a television show in the background, um, that can – that can use up some of your working memory. So the, the way to think about working memory, it's a psychological term, but it's a little bit like your mental RAM. It's your short-term memory, and the more that it gets used up, the less able you are to think about things, particularly complicated things. And so if you are in, let's say, uh, an environment where you know, you've got music playing on in the background, that's going to eat up some of your working memory. And because it eats up some of your working memory, you're not going to be able to think as intelligently about a lot of tasks. It does seem to be that uh, music with vocals is particularly bad for verbal tasks. So if you have to write an essay and you have, you know, music with vocals on in the background, it's going to really deteriorate your performance uh, more so than if you had some kind of, you know, piano concerto uh, in the background. 
Uh, so there is a sense in which, you know, noise, visual distraction, even just things like, you know, is your phone on? Is Are these things going to interrupt you or ping you, I think, do matter. Um, there's another sense of environment, though, where we consider kind of the 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 access to other people, the access to other sort of social and cultural contexts that can make a big difference. So obviously I'm a big fan of immersion when it comes to learning a language. And while I don't think it's the case that you need to be in another country to learn the language, it certainly helps. So if you have the opportunity to go and live in Japan to learn Japanese, it's not going to guarantee that you're going to be able to learn Japanese well. There's lots of people that live in Japan for decades and never learn the language. But at the same time, if you are using the right approach, the fact that you're constantly surrounded by the language makes it a lot better. And so I even make the case that that can be sometimes a reason to pursue more formal education is because it creates the right environment. So uh, graduate school and academia is often a good environment because you are surrounded by other experts on the topic. And so you get to have those conversations about the things in your research that you might not have if you weren't affiliated with an institution. And so I do think being in the right environment can be quite important and I wouldn't underrate it. So if you want to learn something really well, often a good step is how do I find the kind of performance environment? And in that case, I mean sort of the social, cultural kind of environment, not just the physical one uh, that can make a difference. So if you want to you know, be a really good writer, then maybe working for a newspaper will be good because you will have that feedback from the editor and you will be in an environment where the standards are quite high. Um, so it is often good to seek out those kind of environments as well. Uh, I don't talk about it too, too much in ultra learning just because you know, it can be one of those situations where, well, I don't have the opportunity to do X. So, you know, you, you might not be able to do that. But I do think it matters for your overall learning process. And it's certainly not something to completely ignore. A massively helpful question to ask would be to get your opinion on the biggest mistakes that people are making right now, um, maybe to do with their effectiveness or just the mm -hmm. biggest mistakes you think people are encountering through ultra learning. So I would say the biggest mistakes in effectiveness that I see from people would almost be kind of like anti-principles. So if you go through the nine principles and you consider their opposites, those would probably be fairly common mistakes to make. So one I'll give right now is uh, retrieval, which was a principle that I, I added in the book. And this one matters for everything. I don't want to say that it's just for students or just for academic knowledge, but its implication for students is very obvious because students very frequently get this principle wrong and they apply what I'll call the anti-principle, which is where they're not actually retrieving things. And so uh, there was a very interesting study done by Jeffrey Karpicki and Janelle Blunt, which I uh, feature in the book. And in that study, they had students divided up into four groups. One of them did uh, single reviews, so that means that you just they just read through the information. The other one did repeated review, which meant they read through the information multiple times. One of them did a concept map, which is where, you know, that thing where you draw the idea in the center and you draw arrows and you try to put all the ideas in some sort of net a web or network. And then a final group did free recall, which means that after you've reviewed it, you shut the book, you don't look at it again, and you try to write down on a blank piece of paper everything that you can remember. And it was really interesting study because after they had students study, they asked them, how well have you learned the information? So how well do you think you'll do on the test? And the people who did repeated review, if I'm remembering correctly, thought that they had remembered the information the best. So they were like, no, 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 I've got this. I know this information. I have studied it really well. 
Whereas the ones who had done free recall were like, oh no, I don't understand this at all. I don't remember it. My my um, studying method was really bad or, or I'm not, I haven't studied it very well. But when they actually tested the students, it was the exact opposite. So the people who did free recall did, I think, believe in this study it was at least 50% better, but there have been studies where it's been almost twice as good as the people who do, did um, review or repeated review. So they, it was so funny that the student's intuition was the complete opposite of what actually mattered. And the reason that psychologists think that this might happen is because when you review something repeatedly, it becomes easier and easier to process it. So as you see something again and again and again, you're like, oh yeah, oh yeah, I recognize this. I see this. I recognize this. And because it becomes easier, you convince yourself that you've learned it. Whereas when you do free recall, like, uh, you know, an exercise for the people listening here is just pause and try to remember what we talked about in this interview. And I mean, if you're listening to it right now, you're probably following along. But if you pause and try to write down on a piece of paper everything we talked about, you'd probably struggle. It's actually really difficult to do free recall. And so because it's difficult to do free recall, students were convinced that they hadn't learned it very well. But paradoxically, doing the free recall is actually how you remember things better and how you're able to retrieve them better when you actually need to be in a situation to use it. So a lot of students fall into the practice of doing repeated review when they really ought to be doing some kind of self-testing or retrieval practice. And so this is an example of where people have kind of an anti-pattern. They have a way of doing things that is the opposite of what is maximally effective. And I mean, retrieval is just one example. I, I talk about directness in the book. So a lot of people want to learn skills in a very abstract way, mostly from a book without actually applying it because they want to learn it in its most general form. They don't want to try to, you know, sully it by focusing on something too narrow and specific. But then the sort of backfire of that is that often you can't apply that information to the specific problems when you encounter them. Or the other uh, thing I have is with feedback. I mean, a lot of people don't seek out enough feedback early on where they pay attention to the wrong feedback and that can demotivate them and that is uh, ineffective. Are there any specific tactics that, that you found have been um, better than, than, than others in terms of improving your memory or retaining information? Oh, absolutely. So there's lots of different tactics and some of them, I would say are quite general tools. So we just talked about one, which was retrieval. I think retrieval is probably the best, most general purpose memory tool. Um, in fact, there's an interesting uh, study uh, done by Daniel Willingham, who's a Harvard educated cognitive uh, psychologist, as well as a number of other colleagues. I don't know the full author list, but basically they went through popular studying techniques. So they went through a lot of things that have popular studying techniques and they were like, how much empirical support is there for this studying technique and a lot of them received actually kind of bad grades not necessarily because they're terrible methods but because they work in only very specific situations and people try to apply them too broadly but the uh the ones the two techniques that they suggested that got the highest scores the a plus scores where one was practice testing which is basically the retrieval idea that i just mentioned and the other one was distributed practice which is the idea that you want to have multiple exposures to the information or multiple attempts to retrieve the information spread out in time. So if you have distributed practice, so you, you know, you don't just do it all in one go, you do it, okay, a little bit on Monday, a little bit two weeks from now, a little bit two months from now, you will actually retain information far, far longer. So these were the two ideas that had the most support. 
But there are other ideas that I think are worthwhile to mention. So one of them is space repetition systems, which is kind of the distributed practice idea on steroids. So this is where you have software. It's usually flashcard applications. Um, Anki is a really popular open source one, but the same algorithm is used in software like Memorize and um, Super Memo and, and other uh, applications. And what it basically does is it takes your flashcards and tries to figure out what's the optimal uh, spacing to study this information so you'll remember it long term and then there's uh, mnemonics which you know there's a whole bunch of mnemonics I tend to find mnemonics to be a little bit narrower than some advocates so some people love mnemonics and they use it for everything I tend to find they work for certain situations but not all situations or even most situations but I mean if you have to learn vocabulary for a new language knowing the keyword technique which is a technique for memorizing vocabulary using mnemonics is super helpful. So there's also some more speculative ones, um, including uh, proceduralization. So there was some research that I uncovered, which showed that a lot of our knowledge starts out as what psychologists call declarative knowledge, which means that it's the kind of thing that you think about in words or you think about recalling explicitly. And over time, it can become procedural knowledge. That's the kind of muscle memory that people talk about. So the classic example of this is that if you type your password enough, you may forget what the password actually is if you have to write it down on a piece of paper, but you know it by typing it. So I, you can even be that with like a pin code, for instance, that you maybe know your pin code by the motion that your hand makes rather than the specific combination of numbers and letters. And so I thought this was very interesting as well because it shows that if you really practice some skills, you can proceduralize them. And if you proceduralize them, that muscle memory actually lasts longer than declarative knowledge. Uh, part of the reason we say it's like riding a bicycle and not like remembering trigonometry. There's lots of different ways that you can enhance your memory, both for the amount of things you can remember as well as the longevity at which you can remember it. So the software in which you mentioned by there, Scott Onky, I know it very well myself. Could you please just give our listeners a run through of that? So the software is called Anki, A-N-K-I, and uh, this is an open source flashcard application. They have a lot of pre-made decks, but the main way you use it is you create your own flashcards for the thing you're learning. I would say that it tends to work best when you're learning something that has a huge memory burden, and so forgetting and relearning are just a constant problem. Language learning is a classic example. Uh, medical students, uh, Anki is very popular there. I would say that it can also be useful for memorizing a lot of facts and details for things when, when that's appropriate. So I didn't use it at all during the MIT challenge. I don't find it very useful for learning what I'll call conceptual subjects, so subjects where a deep understanding is much more important than having a long list of facts. So mathematics, computer science, physics, there is memory involved in that and sometimes quite a bit of memory, but the kind of memory you need is tends to be closer to an understanding. So it's the kind of thing where it's not enough to merely remember something. You need to be able to recognize that, okay, this physical equation applies to this situation and it's not obvious that it does so. Or you need to, oh, okay, well, when I'm working with logarithms, I need to do this with the algebra. And so these are the kind of things that there is quite a bit of memory. So don't get me wrong. I don't want to say that understanding is separate from memory. But at the same time, it's not the kind that's easily amenable to flashcards. So I didn't use it during the MIT challenge. I don't really recommend it for that 
that too much. There are some maybe specialized cases where it can apply. Um, you know, if you needed to learn a lot of trigonometry identities for doing calculus, that's an area where flashcards would probably be helpful. Um, I didn't even use it so much during learning Spanish or Portuguese. Uh, I found that just having conversations with people was more than sufficient to get that kind of repeated uh, distributed practice. I did find it, however, extremely useful for learning Chinese because I found that when I would actually have conversations with people, particularly in the beginning, it was just too much. There was just too much new information. So people would say a new word and I would forget it immediately because I had no mental hooks to uh, hang it on, so to speak. So I found it very useful for that because it helped form that foundation so that when someone would tell me a new word, I could be like, oh, it's this character and this character and this makes sense because this means that plus this means that and okay, so now I can remember that. So I do think it's a specialized tool, but where it works, it works really well. It's kind of like mnemonics that it doesn't work for everything, but there are some things that when it works, it works so much better than the, than the alternative that I, I still recommend it. What other software would you recommend to aid in this ultra learning process, Scott? So I know a lot of people who love Evernote, for instance, for managing all of the things that they encounter, that they read, that they uncover, that they learn. So I know people that just go hog wild with Evernote systems. And so if you're the kind of person that you love digital tools and you work well with software and you've got all the latest productivity gadgets, then by all means, definitely dig into that and go forward with that. My goal with learning is usually, uh, I would call it brain first. So my goal is, how can I have the information in my head sufficiently so that I know where to find it when I want to look it up? Um, but other people, I think they lean a little bit more heavily on how do I have a really organized um, digital system so that it's a lot easier to find things uh, when I need it. But, uh, but that's a little bit more of a personal preference. Another thing, Scott, which I feel as if we must talk about in terms of learning is this whole idea of learning comfort zones. So, for example, for me personally, I much prefer visual learning uh, as opposed to audio learning. I have my own specific style as to how I like to learn. But oftentimes I question myself and think, is this the most effective? Am I getting the most ROI doing this? So let me ask you, how many people are learning in a specific way in which they like. So for example, you mentioned flashcards earlier. But as opposed to getting the most return on investment, how many people are choosing what feels good to them rather than what would be most effective in terms of the learning outcome and getting the most out of it? So I think you bring up a really good point. And this was one of the things that I wanted to point out is that uh, especially if you aren't really fully aware of the the kind of the way your mind works, the way you learn things, the kind of cognitive science that underlies how you get better at stuff, it's very easy to fall into activities that allow you to mentally check that box so you can feel good about doing something but aren't actually terribly effective. And so what I wanted to do was try to show, okay, this is why this thing is effective and this is why you need to work on these things. But it still can be a hazard if you fall into the feel good things rather than the actually works good options. So 
So people just read books. And that can also create a kind of trap because you keep reading books, you keep reading books, you keep reading books, but you never get anywhere. Okay, this is why that doesn't work. If you only read books and you don't apply it, you're not actually training a lot of the little cognitive tools, the cognitive subroutines that you need to actually perform the skill. And so you may acquire some knowledge, uh, but it's not going to be terribly efficient. And the knowledge you do acquire is likely going to be missing a lot of the scaffolding it needs to actually be effective in your life. So reading books is an example, but I critique a lot more than that because there's a lot of other kind of fun activities that I think are are different enough from what you actually need to be good at that they may actually hurt your progress. So one of the things that I attack, and this is again about language learning, my, my favorite example so far on this call, um, is uh, Duolingo. So Duolingo is a popular app for learning languages. It's, it's probably the most popular app. And I mean, there's a lot to like about it. It has a distributed practice system, so it gets a thumbs up for that. It's a fun kind of gamified environment. It's got a nice user interface. It's got great material. Like it's a lot better than a lot of other courses for things. However, however, it has a few flaws and some of those flaws are big enough that I would consider it not terribly useful for learning a language for the purpose that most people have, which is to have kind of interactions and conversations with people. And the reason why is that if you look at one of the core activities it gets you to do is that it will put up a sentence, let's say it's in English, and then it will give you a word bank of words in the language. So let's say you're learning Italian, it'll have a bunch of words in Italian below, and then you tap with your thumb on your phone which words match up in the right order, and it will tell you whether you got it right or not. And this can feel like you're learning a language. You're like, oh, after all, you're learning a new sentence. But actually, when you dig into it, what are you actually doing there? Well, what you're doing is you're learning to see a word in English or see a sentence in English and then pick from a limited set of about 10 or 15 words. You're learning to recognize which one matches and then combining them. And the reason that this doesn't work very well is because when you're actually speaking a language, no one's gonna give you a list of 10 to 15 words with which to make the sentence you wanna say out of. You actually have to summon it up from memory. You actually have to pronounce it with your lips. You actually have to have air coming out of your mouth to say it and pronounce it properly. And so I don't wanna say that something like Duolingo can never be effective and that there's absolutely zero value to that activity, that a lot of people will spend, let's say months, only doing Duolingo being like, oh, I've got you know another gemstone or another thumbs up from the program and thinking they're making a lot of progress. And then they go on a trip to Italy and they're actually really struggling to actually interact with people. And then they get discouraged and they say, oh, well, maybe I'm just bad at languages or maybe I should have just done it for a decade or more when really they just weren't doing the activity that actually counted. And so this is sort of the message behind ultra learning is that if you really understand what you need to do and why it works, often that thing is harder. But if you actually really do it, you can get through that frustration quickly. And once you start seeing yourself making results, that itself will motivate you to do the hard thing instead of the easy thing that doesn't work very well. So I suppose, Scott, that this would tie into the principle of feedback in learning. You've uncovered how important that feedback is in the learning process from reputable sources. So I suppose in that example there, which you just mentioned of the books, if someone is in a loop of buying books, not applying them, buying more books, then essentially they're never getting any feedback to find out how it's working or what they can do to improve. Am I right in saying that? 
So I love that you bring this up because this is actually one of the insights that I came across by doing the research uh, when I was doing the book because kind of like you, I thought that the main problem was feedback. So the reason why uh, just reading books isn't very helpful is because you're not getting feedback, that you don't actually get any information about your performance. And we all know that feedback is important for learning. Uh, another idea that I had, and I had made a chapter, was again, directness. So another reason that books might not be the most important way to um, learn skills, or at least not a sufficient activity, like they're maybe a necessary one, but not a sufficient activity to learn a lot of skills, is because the activity of reading, what you're actually doing when you're reading, um, is not the same kind of stuff going on in your head as when you're applying it. So really to when you apply it, you actually have to learn a lot of other stuff that wasn't explicitly in the book in order to apply it. And that's true of applying anything that you read. So definitely there's a case to be made that the lack of feedback and the lack of directness are things that make that kind of learning weaker. However, however, I found some very interesting studies that showed that retrieval, this, this idea that we were talking about earlier about recalling things from memory, and that includes skills, not just facts, but recalling things from memory rather than um, just sort of, you know, doing as you're told or doing what you see written down, uh, that why that really matters. And so there was a very interesting study. Um, so this example we were talking about where uh, we, we talked about the students who were doing review versus free recall. It was not the case that the reason free call free recall worked better was because the students got feedback because they didn't get feedback. The students who did the free recall did not get any information about whether they remembered everything. They didn't get any information about which things they remembered incorrectly. So in this particular instance, it was not the case that, well, that worked well because they got feedback on which answers were right and wrong. No. In fact, recalls, uh, free recall and uh, retrieval still works really well, even if you don't have feedback. It works even better with feedback, but it's not the case that it all boils down to feedback. And similarly, with the issue about transfer. So uh, another set of studies were done, and, and uh, as I mentioned, I didn't really talk about concept mapping too much, but free recall did do better than concept mapping in that particular study. But more interestingly, Free recall also did better in a study where the final test was to do a concept map. So that is kind of a funny little contradiction of the directness principle because looks like doing a concept map while you have your book open is actually a worse activity than doing free recall, which is not a concept map for the eventual task of doing a concept map. So that sounds a little confusing, but basically it's saying that retrieval is also a kind of separate idea than uh, just having the practice activity and the testing activity be similar. So I think it's important to recognize that feedback and directness are important, but I also think it's important that when we're talking about what is an effective learning activity, that things like retrieval um, deserve some attention because, you know, again, reading a book, part of the reason that it's not going to be quite as effective is because when you are reading it, the book is in front of you. And when you are in the actual situation in real life, the book is not necessarily in front of you, so you're not necessarily going to retrieve it in that situation in which it applies. And so this is one of the things that I think can be a major obstacle to applying book knowledge is that, yeah, when you're reading it, you're nodding a line like, yeah, 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 that's true, that's true. But then six months later, you're in a situation which really could apply that principle and you just don't think about it.
if you don't know how learning works, it's very easy to fall into this trap of thinking, oh, well, I'm studying when I just do my repeated review of my, my textbook because it feels like I'm studying. And so one of the things I would say about that is that there is definitely a, an emotional component that, you know, going to a new country and doing complete immersion and not, you know, speaking your native language and only trying to speak the language you're learning is obviously hard and difficult. And so there's a reason most people don't do it. Now, I don't think that that reason is necessarily valid because from my own experience doing it, if you stick to it for more than like a couple weeks, it actually gets a lot easier than the alternative approaches to learning. But that's a separate point. I can understand at least why people are reluctant to try it. Um, but there is another reason, and this is related to this repeated review idea. And there's a concept in the psychological literature known as uh, feeling of knowing or judgments of learning. So the JOLs. And judgments of learning are basically that we don't actually have this perfect access to our own minds, which may sound kind of surprising when you say it that way. But really, we don't really know how much we remember about things. The only way we're able to remember things or judge that remembering is by evaluating our own kind of cognitive processes. So the reason why uh, investigators thought that the people doing repeated review felt that they were doing better than those who were doing free recall is exactly because as you do more repeated review, the material becomes more and more familiar. And as it becomes more and more familiar, you can process it more and more fluently. You're able to think about it more and more easily. And as that fluency goes up, you mistakenly think that as fluency has gotten really high, therefore my memory has gotten very high because usually those things do correlate. But in this case, they happen to be somewhat anti-correlated with the uh, the free recall because free recall is really hard. So the activity you're doing, free recall, improves your memory a lot more than repeated review, but it feels like you're pointing out constantly all the things you don't remember. So it feels like you're not doing very well. So I think that there is a natural human tendency to avoid things that feel bad. And so it's important to pay attention to where those feelings are actually misleading um, when it comes to learning things. Uh, and so that's, that's definitely an example where that can happen. Let's look at an ultra learning case study. Talk to me about Tristan de Montebello kind of made out a call to some of my readers to help me out on this. And so he was one of them. And he had said, you know what, I'd love to do an ultra learning project. And he had suggested, you know what, I'm open to lots of ideas. What do you think about piano? And I mean, there was nothing wrong with learning piano. It was just because for me in my head, I was like, well, you're already kind of good at music. So maybe, maybe let's pick something that's a little bit outside your comfort zone. Suggested public speaking. And the, the amazing thing, so the sort of cap of that story is that he really dove into it and his progress in public speaking was just insane. Like he actually went in less than seven months, he went from having only done a handful of speeches in his entire life to being a finalist, the top 10 for the world champion of public speaking, which is a conference put on by Toastmasters every year that has maybe, I think like 30, something like 36,000 people compete every year. And it's like elimination style. So you, you compete with like 10 people and then the best person goes on and then the best person goes on, the best person goes on. So he was like, in order to get to that point, basically he had to go through, I forget how many layers there are, it's like five or six that he had to go through, that he had to beat out every single person at that layer who was also, you know, who had beaten out everyone at the layer before and went on and on. And so he had such a tremendous success with that. And I think 
the reason why he had such a tremendous success is because of the same things that we're talking about, the ultra learning principles that he didn't just sort of, you know, okay, I'm going to do this fun little thing that, you know, eh, maybe it doesn't work, but I'll do it. But he really focused on how can I actually really get better at this skill? And so he's sort of, you know, obviously an extreme example. Not everyone's going to become a world champion in seven months of learning, but I think he's just sort of a, a weird coincidence because I only took a handful of people on just that someone could have such an, an outlier level of success um, from such a small group, I think is, is a testament to the power of, of learning effectively. I love that we are gathering all these tools and tactics and the concepts that allow us to be able to undertake one of these projects. So just looking now in terms of undertaking an ultra learning project, how do we start? So there's two ways to go about it. And I want the listeners here to think about both ways because um, they are going to apply to different people in different situations. So the first way is the way that uh, Tristan, who I just mentioned, applied. It was what I did when I, I went and did the, the projects that I've done. And this is what I'll call the kind of, I would call it the obsessive project leading to obsessive effort kind of approach. And this is the idea where you do your research and you pick a project that, yeah, it sounds a bit scary, but it's also something that you get really excited about. It's something that, wow, that would be so cool. And you can't stop thinking about it. And so I hope that this book will encourage some people to be like, yeah, what about that? What about that? And they start thinking about it. And so for those people, I actually even recommend not getting into it right, right away. So don't start immediately. Spend some time doing your research. Spend some time doing your planning. Spend some time thinking about how you're going to overcome obstacles. And this can really take that small little um, snowflake of ambition and excitement and snowball it until it's such a big sort of object with so much momentum that when you do face challenges, when you do have to, you know, like Tristan was telling me when he's going up, I think this was maybe the semifinals and he was like almost throwing up. He was so nervous. Like, so there's so much fear, but he's already built so much momentum into it. He's already gone so far that he's able to push through that kind of moment of terror to have that moment of triumph at the end. And so for a lot of people, I do recommend thinking about it that way. What is something that you could get so excited, so obsessed about and, and fuel that little spark into a flame so that you will really be able to go forward? So that's one approach to ultra learning. And it's one that I've seen repeated in a lot of the people who have taken on these projects. The other way of doing ultra learning, especially if you have a bad history with learning this thing or with learning in general. So if you have a lot of negative self-talk, if you're the kind of person who thinks of yourself as a bad learner and you've always failed at everything. And so you're the kind of person who, you know, maybe your motivation isn't going to be entirely robust. You might start learning French and then some French person says, oh, you're your French is terrible. I'm going to speak to you in English. And so you immediately break down and it just feels awful. And you like, why even bother? And if you're worried that you're this kind of person with this sort of motivation, then my recommendation is to start with a small concrete project that you can apply all the principles toward and that you can use that to build your positive feedback loop. So for some of us, the obsession is just going to come naturally. We're already in a position that like, yeah, I really want to work on that and I'm going to go full steam ahead. But for some of us, particularly if you haven't had that much success, my advice is to focus on a very small concrete effort and use that to gain some positive feedback. Because really, if you apply the right approach to learning, it is very possible to learn better. 
And so even if you've struggled in the past, you can often learn better and work better at it. The other piece of advice I would have if you have a lot of fear and especially if you have a lot of, you know, negative pent up feelings about yourself is to avoid competition. So the classic way we learn things, I think, is a real downside for a lot of people's motivation, which is throw you in a class with 30 people of varying abilities. And if you happen to be at the bottom of the class, you're going to feel like shit every single time you go to practice. So if you're not naturally good at that or those other people have more experience than you, you're going to feel bad every single day because you're not as good as other people and therefore you're not going to want to practice. So good example of that. Let's say, you know, let's take your example where you're learning salsa. Let's say you're a bad dancer. You've always been a bad dancer. People say you're a bad dancer. You have negative feelings about dancing and you go to a salsa class with 30 other people or you show up to worse you show up to a salsa club with you know dozens of people who have been salsa dancing for years you try to salsa dance you get shot down you get told oh no you're no good at this and you lose all your motivation what i would recommend is get a private tutor just get someone who can uh, guide you through salsaing where there won't be any comparison to a reference group achieve a little bit, build up your positive feedback, and then you can accomplish, once you're feeling a little bit more confident, you can accomplish something a little bit more strenuous. So feedback interplay and this motivation interplay can impact how we encourage other people to take on ultra learning projects. That for some people, what you need to do is, okay, they're motivated, they've got some confidence, let's just Let's just fan those flames and get them to be really obsessed about something so that they can work hard at it. And for other people, it's going to need a more nurturing environment. You're going to need to be in an environment where you are less less forced to compare yourself directly to others. You're just focusing on your own sense of progress. You can just focus on improving. Research on feedback is quite nuanced. I think the message is rather clear to people is that we often are afraid of feedback. We don't like getting criticized. We don't like looking bad at doing things. We don't like to be like, oh, I suck at this, you know, and have that frustration. And that includes me. So when I do things that I'm not naturally good at, I get frustrated. I'm like, I hate this. So this is a human universal. This is not something you ever completely overcome. But at the same time, Sometimes the best way to overcome that is through exposure. So when psychologists deal with people who have fears or phobias uh, and fear of criticism and fear of negative feedback is definitely a phobia that I would say is a pretty human universal is through exposure therapy and exposure therapy is where you just introduce yourself to that thing. And as you receive it more and more, you become less and less afraid of it. And so this is sort of the approach that I recommend for people who are going to take things that you are going to need to have a lot of uncomfortable feedback. So Tristan de Montebello with his public speaking, one of his first things was just like doing a ton of speeches. And once you've done like seven or eight speeches in one week, you don't really feel that afraid when you go up on stage to give a speech because you just already experienced everything that people can say about you. And you know, I even talk about uh, Chris Rock in that chapter of how he practices comedy and he's going up into the uh, the comedy cellar in Greenwich Village and, and delivering his routine, but he's deliberately trying to undersell his performance because he actually kind of wants to bomb some of the jokes. He actually wants to get that negative feedback so he can know which of his jokes are actually funny. So I think there is a real sense in which diving straight into that harsh feedback can be valuable if only just to reduce the fear you have and the pain you have of it. 
But on the other hand, and there's a, there's another hand on this, is that for some people, that negative affect is going to be so strong that they're going to have such a strong aversion to learning that thing. And they're going to be have their motivation be so fragile that, you know, being exposed to negative feedback constantly may you know, they may not be able to get through that exposure, right? Like they just have one person criticize them and they're like, okay, I'm giving up. And so for those people, that's why I recommend you want to kind of bootstrap your confidence by picking these small concrete goals where you're less likely to get that kind of negative comparison to other people so that you can, okay, actually I did learn a little bit this and now you're invested and now you can take a little bit of negative feedback and not give up immediately. So you have to really analyze for yourself what position you're in. And it may be that for some things, the diving right into the negative feedback approach is going to work best for you. And for other skills where maybe your motivation isn't super high and you've had some bad experiences in the past, the kind of slowly building up to it is going to be a more appropriate response. So I think the the listeners here are just going to have to decide for themselves which applies to them for which projects. I noticed in the book, Scott, that you give two tools for focus. You gave flow and you offered deliberate practice, which is something which I'm an enormous proponent of, which is a device which I believe was popularized by Anders Ericsson. We've had Stephen Kotler on the show that has sort of flown this flag for the new generation of flow and he's really furthered the research on this. Where do you stand on these two ideas as a learning concept? So this is actually an academic debate between uh, Mihai, Tixent Mihai, I'm flow author, and Anders Ericsson. K. Anders Ericsson is the deliberate practice guy. And so they sort of, you know, when we're dealing with psychology, one of the things I try to avoid too, too much is that a lot of people have kind of pet concepts where like they're the main researcher who studies that. And so they have kind of an idiosyncratic approach and both flow and deliberate practice are kind of of that vein. Um, so a lot of the concepts I talk about do sort of have a lot of uh, different perspectives contributing to the research. But these are sort of two like big ideas in psychology that have some support. So Sheik sent me high. His idea of flow is that flow, which is this absorptive state of attention where you are not self-conscious and you are just in the zone and that he links this to performance and happiness and creativity and obviously he thinks this is a really good thing whereas Anders Ericsson's deliberate practice concept is kind of contrary to that because his model of deliberate practice involves us a great deal of self-consciousness so the idea of deliberate practice is that the expert or the person who is doing deliberate practice is constantly sort of monitoring what they're doing and altering kind of their default response. So in his view, flow is not amenable to deliberate practice because if you are in a flow state, you are not self-conscious kind of by definition, and you need that self-consciousness to edit or alter your response from what the default would be. So if you are a golfer and your default approach would be if you're in the zone to just golf it in a certain way, his idea is that, well, what deliberate practice is, is you recognizing, oh, actually, I need to really focus on my follow through. That's not habitual for me. So I need to actually focus on that. So in my own point is not really to adjudicate this debate. Um, I do lean a little bit more towards Anders Ericsson, at least for some learning tasks. When I reflect on my own learning process, you know, to whatever, uh, whatever it approaches the ideal, I don't know. But 
when I look at my own learning process in, let's say, the year without English or um, the MIT challenge or portrait drawing or what have you, there are definitely a lot of moments that I would describe as being in flow. So I definitely don't think that if you want to be an ultra learner, you can't be in flow ever and you should be avoid being in flow and, and what have you. But at the same time, I also understand and recognize Erickson's point. And Erickson's point is just that often when we are in a flow state, we are in a flow state because according to Cheeksman Mihai's own research, the difficulty is neither too hard to be frustrating or too easy to be boring. And the problem I think is that very often the thing you need to do to edit your performance, to improve your performance, is to get a little frustrated, is to get in a situation where something is a little bit difficult so that it makes you say, huh, the thing that I want to do doesn't work here. And the thing that I would do by default isn't working. How can I get around that? And so I don't know exactly what the right way to think of it is. But when we're talking about focus and we're talking about flow, my only advice is to not worry about it too much. So I don't want to tell people you got to be in a flow state. It's all about maximizing that flow state. But I also don't want to tell people the opposite where never get in a flow state. Flow is the enemy. You always got to be interrupting your own process by like, you know, evaluating what you're doing self-consciously. Rather, I want people to be aware of what the difference is. And I want you to think about when you're doing your thing. The main thing is, is my sort of mental activities so I don't want to adjudicate this debate between Erickson and Cheeksent Mihai. I think that that will take a lot more research. I would like to see some experiments that maybe can show the contrast, because right now this is just sort of the expert opinion of these two researchers. But at the same time, I do think that for the average person who is listening to this right now, my advice would be sometimes when you're doing ultra learning, you're going to be in a flow state. Things are going to feel like they're coming really effortlessly and you are going to be making progress. But sometimes you're going to need to get frustrated. And I don't think frustration should be seen as something to avoid when you're learning. In fact, it's very often the thing to cultivate because if you never get frustrated, if things never feel difficult, it's probably unlikely that you're actually going to be reaching your peak performance. So my advice when we're looking at this debate, at least until more scientific research comes in, is just to not worry too much about the flow state in the peak learning activity. Keep in mind when you actually are performing the activity. So when you're learning Spanish, let's say, and you're ultra learning it, you may get frustrated sometimes. But when you go to have conversations with people, hopefully they will mostly be in a flow state because you will have been practicing it already. So I don't worry about it too much. Uh, but I wanted to sort of, you know, weigh in a little bit on uh, on the meaning of this debate. Malcolm Gladwell created this 10,000 hour rule based mm. off of Anders Ericsson's research. But I think Ericsson himself is somewhat regretful that that has become popularized from his research because his idea wasn't really to say that 10,000 hours exactly is how much you need to become an expert at something, but rather that people who are experts seem to have accumulated a lot of what he calls deliberate practice as opposed to just sort of naturally being talented at it. And so that was sort of the message behind his research. And I would also argue a lot of what Gladwell talks like about in Outliers, but the 10,000 hour rule has become sort of a popular simplification of that idea. The deliberate practice research I think is very interesting and I think it has a lot to weigh on uh, with ultra learning. I was actually in, in contact with Anders Ericsson when I was writing the book. So he gave me feedback on some chapters wow. um, and, you know, offering his own thoughts on, on these sort of, sort of approaches. So I think definitely if you're interested in the research underlying a lot of this kind of expert learning, um, I would definitely uh, check out Anders Ericsson and his book, Peak. What are your favorite ways to protect your focus? 
or indeed increase your focus, Scott, because we know that this is so, so imperative. Definitely. So there'd be a couple things I would suggest. One is to know your own vices. I think that there is a a kind of a tendency among some people. Some people fully admit, oh, I'm addicted to my phone. But a lot of people, they want to rationalize it. They want to say, oh, well, you know, it's the kind of the old addict statement. Like, I can quit anytime I want, right? I just don't want to right now. And I think for a lot of us, we need to recognize that the internet and information are modified. I don't think that this is necessarily as, you know, um, what would be the right word? Well, I don't want to say evil, but it's not necessarily as sinister as as some pundits are making it out. But I definitely think that the way that technology has sort of co-evolved in our environment is to become more and more and more enticing. That basically the apps and and technologies that succeed are those that capture our attention. And so it's not really the fault of, let's say, the tech companies or our own. It's just sort of a co-evolutionary trend where, you know, smartphones become more and more appealing, things become more and more addictive, and we have to kind of juggle those. And I think the problem is that a lot of worthwhile activities, as Cal Newport will state, uh, are not undergoing this same intensity of evolution. And so they're kind of getting left behind. So these sort of boring, slower activities are the very things that we're unlikely to do now when we're checking our phone for Twitter and text messages and Facebook and, and what have you. So for me, I think the starting point is to recognize your own vices. If you find that you're someone who is likely to be addicted, uh, which is probably most of us, but if you're likely to be addicted, I think it's important to set up structures to kind of manage that. So easy ones are, you know, when you are working, when you are doing deep work, have you know your room or your office or your learning environment be kind of a cone of silence. So put your phone on silent, put your messages on silent, don't accept, you know, new requests or new pings. So that would be the first thing. Um, if you find that you are consuming too much time on these applications, so it's not so much an issue of just them coming at you and interrupting you, but like you were saying, oh, I'll just check my phone for a little while. And then, you know, 20 minutes later and you're down the YouTube rabbit hole checking out some stupid video, then <laughs> there's lots of applications you can use to, uh, to modify and control your own behavior. So some of them that I like, I really like leech block. I use that for uh, my Firefox, which basically restricts the amount of time I have per day for social media. Um, so like YouTube, Reddit, Facebook, et cetera. And so that's a good application because once I've used up my time, then those websites get blocked and I don't access them. Um, I also, you know, you can, now I have an iPhone and if you have an iPhone, you can even set your screen time amount. So if there's certain apps that you're likely to overuse, you can put them in so that you won't overuse them. I have a friend that goes even more extreme than this. This isn't something that I do, but uh, my friend, he actually has his television at home. He has it in a locked box. The like actual, um, uh, like the outlet for it is in a locked box that is plugged through one of those, you know, those light timers that will like turn your lights on and off at night wow. uh, automatically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. so basically his television is only only has power to it for certain hours of the day so that once that, you know, once I guess like 9 PM is like bedtime or something the like the power just goes out and he can't use the television anymore. Wow, and so genius. this may sound kind of extreme and like some of our friends group would like kind of make fun of him for going to this, 
But I'm telling you, he watches a lot less television than us. And he like goes out and he does fun activities and he works on things he cares about. So I would say that, you know, recognizing that you're susceptible to this is often the first step because then, you know, okay, I'm susceptible, but let's make an environment that has some boundaries so that, you know, you could go Cal Newport's digital minimalism where you have a detox and you don't use anything, or you could be like my friend and cultivate these sort of strategic barriers um, that prevent you from overindulgence. Before we before we wrap up, there are three questions that we ask every guest, so I can't let you go without answering those. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one being, you're obviously a fantastic author yourself, and I'm sure Ultra Learning is going to go on to do some big things. But what books have you personally read in your life that have impacted you? So we've talked about a lot of uh, books in the program. I think we mentioned James Clear's Atomic Habits, Cal Newport's Deep Work and Digital Minimalism, Anders Ericsson and Robert Poole's Peak. Um, I want to recommend one book that I didn't talk about and is a book because I think most people have not read it. And honestly, it is one of the most mind-blowing books I've read. It's called The Enigma of Reason. It's by Dan Spurvey and uh, Hugo uh, Mercier. And it's a little bit more of an academic book about psychology, but basically it's trying to understand um, how the human kind of faculty of reason works. And essentially what they argue is that all our thinking about how reasoning works from, you know, coming back from Aristotle and Plato's day is wrong. (laughs) And that a lot of the people who talk about, let's say, biases and heuristics and, you know, like Daniel Kahneman and thinking fast and slow and this kind of stuff. um, The problem is that we're thinking about how reasoning works differently. And honestly, the book, if you kind of really think through it, it's one of those deep books that I recommend reading a couple times. Or if you'd like, you can read my um, article about it. So if you Google Enigma of Reason, uh, Scott H. Young, you can find uh, one of my articles about it. And uh, I think it's really fascinating because it really made me rethink what does it mean to think about things? Are there any societal rules that you love to break? So uh, maybe I'm going to break your rule by changing the question slightly, but I don't think so much about societal rules, but what I'll call societal assumptions, because a lot of the things that we follow are not actually rules anyone's written down somewhere or articulated, but just People do it that way because everyone else does it that way. And so, you know, I've talked about a lot of them, but one of my big things when I approach any new learning project are what are the assumptions people have about what you have to do to learn this? And then can you rework from first principles? Maybe some of those are wrong. Often they're, they're okay, but sometimes there's ones that you can break them and you can do something I think really special. So one of the ones I want to leave with you today is, you don't have to go to a class to learn something that is taught in a class. <laughs> I love it. And um, the last one would be if you could distill the lessons you've learned in your life down into a short but impactful message that you would share with every person on the planet, what would that message be? So I think if I were to leave something, I would leave with the message of ultra learning, which is to rethink what you're capable of learning. You can actually learn a lot more than you think you can. And don't be afraid to try something a little bit crazy. Where can our audience connect with you on social media? Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter at uh, at Scott H. Young. I also recommend coming to my website, scotthyoung.com. And then obviously, uh, please check out my book. I think that if you've enjoyed and listened to this conversation so far, you'll find it useful for your own learning endeavors. Scott. We cannot thank you enough for coming on the show. It's been an absolute privilege. Thanks. It's been great chatting with you guys.